Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular, completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today because she is a woman that I've been following for over eight years. Andrea Owen is an author, a global speaker, and a professional certified life coach who helps high achieving women maximize unshakable confidence and master resilience. She's taught hundreds of thousands of women tools and strategies to be able to empower themselves and live their most kick-ass life through speaking, her books, coaching, and her wildly popular podcast, which has over 3 million downloads. She's the proud author of three books. I have them all. She wrote How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness, and 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life. And she's here to talk about her new book, Make Some Noise, speak your mind and own your strength. Plus, Andrea quit drinking almost 10 years ago. How I was introduced to Andrea was actually, I know a lot of you listening are familiar with the podcast, The Bubble Hour. And the first time I stopped drinking, I was walking the hills around my neighborhood 
and listening to the Bubble Hour, and I stumbled upon an episode with Andrea and one of her best friends, Courtney, and it completely gave me hope and useful ideas and inspired me that life without alcohol was better. So Andrea, welcome on the podcast. Hi, Casey. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm excited for this conversation. I am too. So one of the reasons I love your new book, Make Some Noise, and I've been underlining so much of it, is that you really talk about sort of the culture that women are raised in and socialized in and how that sort of impacts our emotions and our actions and any, you know, all the aspects of our lives. Yeah, that was really the jumping off point several years ago when I started thinking about my next book and and what it was going to be. And I think it was around 2015, I wrote a poem on my podcast called My Resignation. And it was it was basically about, you know, writing a letter, if you will, to everyone, <laughs> the culture, society, and just saying I'm I'm done with this box of conformity that that we're taught to to be in, that we're more valued if we stay in our quote unquote, in our own lane. And that I knew also that I couldn't talk about women's empowerment anymore without talking about this, because it is sort of like the elephant in the room that is the root of the problem for so many of the issues that women come to me with. Yeah. So tell me about that. What are the issues that women come to you with and, and what's keeping them stuck in those patterns? It's several things. I'm thinking about some of the clients that I have right now. And uh, for some of them, they they don't come to me and say, I'm a chronic people pleaser. Can you can you come and help me? It's it's usually the sort of general malaise that they're feeling about their life, or they have such a hard time. They're they're struggling in their relationships. Maybe it's like with their partner or their work relationships, or you know, maybe with their friends, and they don't have the tools or skills to speak up for themselves and, and communicate properly what's going on with them. Um, some of them, you know, complain about being perfectionists and just procrastinating on living their life and just not having the confidence to either, you know, start their own business or go after something. And some of them just kind of can't put a finger on it, but they just don't feel fulfilled. And when we get down to it, it has a lot to do with kind of the basics of life coaching, like their values and things like that. But it also comes down to how they were raised, not just from their parents, but from our culture and how we as women are taught, usually not explicitly, sometimes we are, but it's this unconscious sort of messaging of be accommodating, make sure everyone else is comfortable, don't rock the boat, don't make a scene. And, and you know, there are real implications when we, when we stray away from that. I'm not going to sit here and say like, yeah, everybody just needs to start flipping tables and flipping off their boss. No, it's not about that. What I want the reader to get from the book is just curiosity. And if they're ready, which I hope they are, is to push back on, on the culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even internally, right? Because a lot of times we keep ourselves small because we have a lot of worries or anxieties or fear kind of about what the blowback will be. Sure. And that's a very real fear. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's not, and, and you know, or that you're making it up. You know, and, and it depends on the woman, there are sometimes even bigger risks. So depending on your race, on your class, on your ability, on your sexual orientation, you know, I come to this conversation as a white woman with immense amounts of privilege. And so when I speak up, whether it's on social media or on my podcast, or, you know, if, if I had like a corporate job where I needed to speak up, I don't have a lot of risk involved. 
And I just say that to acknowledge it. It really depends. And again, I'm not telling everybody (laughs) to go run amok um, unless, you know, your safety always comes first. And, but yeah, I mean, even, even within families, it it can be risky to speak up maybe about family dysfunction, even if, Mm -hmm. you know, you're an adult and you're talking to your parents about it. And there's also real strategies of how to do it correctly. But my, my point is, is that it's also imperative to do the internal work before you take action. Yeah. And so tell me about that internal work. Like how does that begin? Well, if somebody's just starting out in it, one of the questions that I pose in the beginning of the book and that I pepper throughout is the question, what is your conditioning versus what is your truth? Mm. So say you are hesitant to maybe you're a business owner and you you know, make your own prices or you're at work and you're hesitant to ask for a raise or ask for a promotion. Question becomes like, what do you make up might happen? Are you worried that you are going to be misunderstood and somebody will take something out of context? Are you worried that only, you know, do you make up a story about the kind of woman that asks for more money or raises her rates? Like, are they greedy, opportunistic? Because there's conditioning in there. You know, there's, there's something going on that you may or may not be conscious of. And then what is your truth? You know, the truth really is, is that you're entitled to get paid for your experience and your, your expertise. Your truth might be that you have ran a business for 10 years and haven't raised your rates in, in five years. Or So just, just to get really curious about that, maybe journal on it, on that question. What is your conditioning versus what is your truth? Yeah, I love that. And I love when you were saying like, your internalized conditioning or ideas about like women who ask for more and what kind of people they are, because we've internalized that, right? We judge other women for the same things that, you know, we dislike that society judges women for. Yeah. I'm reading a book right now called Rage Becomes Her. And I cannot remember the name of the, the author. Uh, I, that's, I know that's the title of the book. The, the woman's name starts with an S. I, I can remember that. But she talks about anger, like just, you know, just let's just talk about the, the emotion anger and how there's, and she cites a bunch of research that was done even on babies and toddlers and how we're socialized differently as little boys and, and little girls as babies. It's fascinating how we rate babies' faces depending on if they're a boy or a girl and, and like sad versus angry. I won't get into the research, but it's my my point is, is that this starts very young. You know, this is why the term resting bitch face, uh, you know, this is my opinion, like why this came about is because for a woman to have a neutral face and, you know, if she's not smiling, which that's, that was another part of the research that little baby girls are encouraged to smile more than little baby boys are. It starts that young, but, you know, resting bitch faces, you know, when we are not smiling, we are viewed differently towards both to both men and women. It's so fascinating how much our upbringing and our culture and society influences how we show up as adults. And I, the reason that I emphasize it so much here on your show and in the book is because I don't want women to think that this is their fault. Yeah. Like, yes, we become adults and we are then responsible for our behavior and our beliefs and the action we do or do not take. However, (laughs) culture plays a big part in this. And this is also not to give you an out to say like, well, that's just the way it is. Like, no, you can simultaneously work on it on yourself and work on changing the narrative of the culture. Oh my gosh. 
Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48, so if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H dot com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. I love that you said that. And actually, when I was reading your book, I like circled resting bitch face first because I love any book that mentions that. I was just like, oh my God, that is so classic. But I also was introduced to the phrase. I first learned about it when I was working at L'Oreal in corporate Mm -hmm. digital marketing. And I hadn't heard it before. And they were like, of course, it is 80% women in corporate digital marketing at L'Oreal. And there, it was women who introduced me to that phrase about other women, right? right? And I was just like, so when I was reading that, I was just like, holy shit. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, like I bought into it. Because I was just like, you're right. And it's that, you know, there were not a lot of men in that circle. That was like women talking about other women and how you're supposed to smile and, you know, act and all the things. So I was completely blown away and really interested in that. And it made me question, of course, things that I've done in the past because Mm -hmm. I've been socialized and sort of my personality is to be very nice and smiley and make other people comfortable. And I was even recognizing this morning, my daughter, I have a seven-year-old daughter, Lila. Mm -hmm. She did not speak to me the entire walk up to the bus stop just before I jumped on this call and had her arms crossed. It was giving me like the sour face. And it was because I was like getting her ready and all the things. And she was like, totally like had a tone and was like, I'm sorry, mom, you've already told me that I don't. And I was like, tone, do not talk to me that way. And it's such a, like, I want her to be sweet. and like, Hey mom, thanks for telling me that, you know? Uh Well, and and you make a good point because it's a tricky balance too. You know, I have, I have a boy and a and it's, I have to question myself sometimes. I'm like, am I saying this? to him, you know, when I say the same thing to the other child, you know, and, and so sometimes I don't know, (laughs) I don't know, but I think it's a good thing to kind of question yourself. And so my personality, like I've always been 
uh, like enthusiastic and fun. Like that's how people describe me. But I've also been described as intimidating and, you know, sometimes aggressive and assertive and um, very direct. And those qualities, if you will, I take those to heart more. And I do notice, and this has been happening for decades, that I am very cognizant of reading people and how I am being um, kind of assessed by other people. And I also read somewhere recently that there was research done about women and their faces and how much we raise our eyebrows to create a more open face so that we are perceived as nicer and like more open and accommodating. And I was like, I do that all the time. And and like, to be fair, I don't know if that's just my natural expression or if it's something that I've adopted as a coping mechanism to get people to um, feel like they're safe with me and feel like they're comfortable because I think my go-to honestly is more of like a resting bitch face. Like, it's just, but I'm not mad. It's just my natural face. You just don't spend all your time contorting your face to look friendly every time you walk around the world. Exactly. Like, and there's been plenty of people who have asked me like, are you mad or are you upset? And I'm like, no, I'm just not smiling. And like, I don't think they would ask the same thing to my husband. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and all of this is to say, of course, like it's not bad to be smiley and friendly and and like people, but it's also just to question why you're doing it. And if you're afraid of something, if you don't, or how much energy that's taking out of you. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I think it's, it's not a coincidence that more women struggle with people pleasing and imposter complex and perfectionism than men do. Men definitely have their own challenges. Their challenges are different than ours and their challenges are also cultural too, but I'm not an expert on that. That's for somebody else. Um, And it's, it's cultural. I think it's a combination of our wiring for one, you know, like I, I recently got diagnosed with a few different things. And one of them was impulse control disorder, which is very interesting because that has to do with addiction. We can talk about that if you want, but I think, you know, for some people, they have more of a sensitivity around rejection. And so that could cause them to people please more or, or, you know, be more inclined to engage in perfectionism. And also it, you know, depends on your upbringing from your family and a lot of it. And I would argue most of it comes from our culture. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about all of that, but yeah, you brought up addiction. I know you quit drinking almost 10 years ago. I quit about five and a half. I feel like a lot of women who are caught up in all of this, right? Perfectionism, people pleasing, inability to, or just being slightly uncomfortable taking up space, all that stuff tend to do all the things and then come home and drink a bottle of wine to like shut down their minds and forget about all the things. And tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting conversation. And, you know, full disclosure, I'm not uh, a substance abuse counselor or I, I just I, you know, I'm certified in a lot of things, but that's not one of them. But I do have a lot of experience in sobriety and recovery. Um, also, my dad got sober when I was 18. So that was in 1993, I believe. Yeah, 1993. And um, he passed away in 2016, but he had many, many, many years of of sobriety. And it's, it's so interesting in my experience. And I only know this in retrospect, I could not have told you this when I was still drinking. I could not be, I had, I had severe codependence and, and what that looked like for me is that I had an inability to be with anyone's feelings 
including my own. And so that manifested as, as you're trying to control others, trying to control every situation, having really poor boundaries, um, martyrdom and, and just, it was, it's not a, it's not a fun place to be, but when it's all, you know, it's all, you know. And I, I, also was just kind of trying to run away from my life. Like I didn't have the skills. I was incredibly emotionally illiterate. I did not have the skills to process any of my emotions, to talk about them in a mature way, or even really in an immature way. Like I just didn't. And I was, I was very much, um, dichotomous with my emotions. Either I was all in completely and, and had very little control of my emotions. So it was like, you know, breakdowns or outbursts, or I completely compartmentalized and boundaried off and like shut them all down, which I can still do in times of stress, which is frighteningly interesting. Um, but it's like, that's kind of a nutshell of, of how I was, I was living. Couple that with, impulse control issues where I would try, I think like many people probably listening to this to just have a couple of drinks and I didn't have an off switch and I just would keep going, whether I was out with a bunch of friends or by myself at home. I just, I had the mentality, like if one is good, then five is better. Like just the excess of it. So it was sort of a recipe for disaster. (laughs) And that's how I found myself pretty dysfunctional when it came to my relationship with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm nodding my head because all of that sounds like me. Um, I was interested in, you said severe codependency and then trying to control everything. Like what's the connection there for you? You mean with drinking or with codependency? With codependency, right? Cause that's not, um, a lot of times people think of codependency as like going along with what everyone else thinks, but then you describe it as sort of control. And I know sometimes it's manipulation too. Yeah. I think there's a misconception with, with codependence and they think that it's sort of like, you know, maybe two people enmeshed with each other and not very much can be a manifestation of it, but it's, it's, it's a little bit more complex than that. And I like the definition of, you know, it's like this complete inability to be with our own feelings, be with other people's feelings. And because of that, we behave a certain way. We also very much take care of other people and then get resentful when our needs aren't met, (laughs) but we don't have the boundaries to be able to take care of ourselves or tell people no. And then we get pissed (laughs) (laughs) that they're not taking care of us or that we don't have time to take care of ourselves. Like I don't know if I'm answering your question, Casey, but I'm, I'm trying to think of like how to describe for, for how it showed up for me is I was obsessed with controlling other people's behavior. So I would very much like get involved in any kind of drama, like, like with, with my family. And if there wasn't any, I might like try to make some and then try to like, you know, help people, but it was all in an effort like I might say, I, I I would have said like, oh, I just want to help people. But like the truth of it was I wanted to help people because by doing so I was avoiding helping my own life. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. 
I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective than just CBD alone. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi's being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. Well, so how did that shift after you stopped drinking? Because I know there's always a lot underneath. I mean, that's exactly what you're describing underneath why we drink. And then you take away, you know, that maladaptive coping strategy and you're still left with all the stuff. Right. Which I was not prepared for that. (laughs) I don't know if you were, but I was. No, absolutely. (laughs) Well, and I also was like, fuck, I stopped drinking. Why is not everything solved? Like, why am I still feeling anxious and dealing with this shit? Like I took away the thing. I should be fixed. Right. I felt the same way and I was, I was pissed off. And then I also like, couldn't drink <laughs> to take it away. Yeah. So actually I, I started my healing from codependency before I quit drinking. So I ha- also was in and out of an eating disorder and I was a really bad love addict, which all love addicts are codependent, but not all codependents are love addicts. So love addicts is basically like, imagine, you know, just replacing drinking with, people and like love relationships, you know, whether it's men or women, I got help for that. Like my life fell apart in like 06, 07. And then my therapist had been telling me for years that like codependency was a, was a problem with me, but I was still so codependent. (laughs) I was like, no, this is other people's problem. Like, yeah, I might have a little bit of issues, but like if other people would just behave, then my life would be so much better. And theirs would be better too. They just don't know yet. So (laughs) when my life fell apart, I was forced to look at my own issues and codependence and love addiction and my eating disorder were like the main things that I was looking at. And at that time, I wasn't even really, drinking wasn't really a problem because I had the other things. So when I started to heal from that and really looked at the symptoms and moved myself away from the symptoms and did some therapy to be in recovery, that's when my drinking picked up mm. and really went quickly. And I was doing some research and found out that for women, we tend to go down the elevator, if you will, <laughs> faster than men. And there's theories that it's because we metabolize sugar differently and that we move into addiction fairly quickly. It can happen fairly quickly. And I knew that that's what was happening to me. And so I quit. So I quit in 2011 and I had started healing from the other stuff around 2007. So Mm -hmm. it was like those last two years, like 2009, after my daughter was born, 2010 was probably the worst of it. And then I got sober in 2011. Okay. Yeah. 
And and that's super common, right? I mean, I've experienced it. Lots of women, you have a baby, you think when you get pregnant that maybe it's going to solve the issue, right? Now yeah. I'm gonna have, I won't be able to drink so much. I'll be so happy. And then for a lot of women, it's after they have a baby that the drinking like picks up because it is difficult to have this little person to take care of all the time. And you are more isolated and have fewer options for self-care and doing things for yourself and all that. Yeah. I had really bad postpartum anxiety, actually more with my first baby, my son, it was, it was really bad, like bordering on psychosis. Mm. Um, it wasn't quite as bad after my daughter was born, but that was part of why I drank. And, you know, it's funny, my husband, we were talking recently about, cause I also have auditory processing disorder. So when I'm like parties are, are tricky for me, even though I'm very extroverted, they're tricky for me because of all the different noise going on. And, and he, and he said to me, he's like, before we, we used to go to parties a lot and you loved going to like bars and restaurants. And I was like, because I was always drinking, like, yeah, that was how I dealt with the anxiety temporarily. Yeah. <laughs> it worked until it didn't. And then it was even worse than it was previously. Yeah. I get that. So talking about the book, I know that the first two chapters are all about taking up space and what you call shining too bright. Will you talk to us about those two things, how they go hand in hand and why mm -hmm. they're important? Yeah. The concept of taking up space, I wanted to write a chapter about it because it's one of those, anytime there's like a cliche that gets thrown around in the personal development space, like I like to break it down for people because I think some people think that it might look a certain way or that it's very surface level. And like, I'm here to say like, you cannot take advice from a Pinterest meme. Like you have to really dig in and understand what's going on. So taking up space, you can take up space with your body. And that is, you know, body acceptance, you know, um, body liberation, many people call it or body positivity, whichever term you like better. And that is not an easy task, you know, living in a, in a culture that we do where there's so much emphasis puts for women, like on our, our body and appearance and also youth. So, so that's one aspect of it. And then you can take up space with your voice. That's giving an opinion that is, um, having a hard conversation and speaking up for yourself, setting boundaries, and you can also take up space with your power and your confidence. So that's setting goals and going after them, deciding that you belong in uh, leadership positions, things like that. And so there's internal and external work. There's the internal work, like where is your hesitation? What are you afraid might happen if you take up space? And, and I'm not saying that those, those fears are unwarranted. Like sometimes there's real risk. I'm not going to say it's all in your head and you just need to like go past it. And then there's, you know, the, ac the action steps of it. When we're talking about shining too bright, they're, they're, those two topics are like sisters. The reason that I named it shining too, shine too bright instead of just shine bright is because all humans, but I'm going to talk specifically about what it looks like with women, tend to have a fear around outshining others. I shouldn't say all humans. Many humans have that fear of outshining others. So that might be you know, a sibling or your best friend or your partner. And for women... I think it's especially a fear because we are taught to always make others uncomfortable. And that if we're making others uncomfortable or if we're putting someone out, that's on us. We are responsible for their feelings. Mm -hmm. And often this happens like with our parents, like if we make more money than our parents, if we out earn our husbands, if we're in a heterosexual relationship and that can cause us to quote unquote, play small 
and you know, not go after bigger things, not set bigger goals. And, and again, it's just something that like, I want people to look at, like, just where do you do that? I still do it sometimes. Like it, you know, with my friends, like, I don't want to be, I have a fear around like hogging all of the spotlight and just like, Oh, Andrea, do you have to write another book? Like with some of your friends haven't like, wait for them to catch up when none of my friends have been like, can you not, you know, <laughs> they would never, and I'm just making it up. So that's sort of like the gist of those two chapters. Yeah. And part of that is also like the way we even accept compliments, right? Like someone's like, oh my God, that was so awesome. And you're like, well, you know, it's not like whatever, or yeah, but this thing didn't go right. Right. We can't even accept a compliment without trying to minimize it or go back. Right. So what I would ask someone in those instances is what, a, what about accepting that makes you uncomfortable? Like if you were just to say thank you and you experienced discomfort, why? Like, tell me about that. Like what would, what would be so bad if you, um, or do you judge someone who just accept, accepts compliments with open arms and, and thanks and gratitude. So like that, that would be what I would ask people to do is to dig into it. And when you say being uncomfortable with all the things was shining too bright, do you experience it like physically in your body or how does that sort of manifest? Sometimes, um, not as much for me anymore, be just because I've been working on this for so yeah. long, but yes, sometimes I still do. And I, and, and what a lot of people probably experience is this similar, not always, but it's, it can be the similar manifestations, uh, and like physiological experience of shame. So, and that's, you know, a topic that I teach and it's so important when we're doing shame work to understand what happens in your body. For many people, it's, you know, you get like a hot face or head and neck. Some people, um, you know, they'll get red in their neck and chest. Some people get, um, tingling armpits, tunnel vision, dry mouth. Like these are like biological things that happen to us that at one time, and sometimes, you know, depending if you're going to get, you know, chased by somebody with a knife, like they're important <laughs> for our bodies to do, but not necessarily when you're taking a compliment or, mm -hmm. or something like that. So yes, that was a long way of answering. Yes. Yeah, can definitely happen. Well, and so one thing I thought was interesting is you talk about two things at the same time, right? Being afraid of shining too bright, shrinking to make others too comfortable or others happier and sort of not necessarily going for what you want. So you don't kind of stand up and then also kind of moving away or being absorbed from hustle culture, right? How yeah. do those two things fit together? Yeah, it's interesting. And I think that it's a conversation that I think is important now as many of us in the personal development space, you know, myself included, who were caught up in hustle culture. I mean, my first book, 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, is, is wrapped up in hustle culture and there's some toxic positivity in there. Um, it was 2012. That's what we were all doing. <laughs> and um, when you know better, you do better. And it was a, probably around 2015, 2016. Um, where I started to think about it. And then I had my second burnout and I thought to myself, okay, this can't be the way to success. Like, cause this is not sustainable. And, and there were some other factors in there. Like I really had to have some hard conversations with my husband about the imbalance, you know, the division of labor that was happening. Um, so all this to say, 
I think that there is no perfect prescription that works for everybody when it comes to deciphering, like, are you participating in hustle, hustle culture? Um, are you really playing small or is it enough? Like each individual person has to decide using their previous experience, using the information that they have, and also using their instincts decide what works for them and what's best for them. And I want to emphasize like the previous experience part, like sometimes you don't know until you crash and burn. Sometimes you don't know until you decide not to go for something and then it's too late and you missed an opportunity that you regret not, not doing. So I wish I had a better answer (laughs) than saying, it depends and you have to figure it out for yourself. That's usually not my answer when it comes to what you just mentioned. It's very personal and nuanced. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I actually just had a conversation with a client yesterday who was sort of deciding about two jobs that, you know, her company, her organization really wanted her to go for, which is a huge vote of confidence, right? And clearly she'd been doing a kick-ass job. And there was one that you could hear the energy in her voice. She's like, this would be awesome. I could do X, Y, Z. I could build a culture. I would be, you know, the, I get to choose the office and it could be no more than a 15 minute commute. And I could be home with my babies or meet the bus stop at 4 PM and all these amazing things. And she's also quitting drinking, right? So it's super Mm -hmm. important to keep that like work-life balance and reduce overwhelm and figure out what makes you happy other than work, which can be really stressful. And the other job that her boss and, you know, the general manager wanted her to go for was a lot of travel and really stressful and the internal politics and all the things. And she was like talking to me about it because she was anxious about all weekend. And she said to me, I don't want to do that. And I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, you know what you want. Like in one situation, you're so excited. The other one, you're really feeling dread. Why are you not just stating that or, or how big of a mistake would it be to step into a role that you like in your gut are like, I do not want this, you know, and like doing that check beforehand and, and having sort of the bravery to turn down an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I experienced something kind of similar. Um, and this is sort of when I was exiting hustle culture and realizing how much I, I got caught up and was influenced by our, our industry and the coaching industry and how for a long time it was like, you know, make six figures in your business. And then I, and then I did that and that was great. And then, um, you know, now it's, now it's like minimum, like seven figure business. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I guess like that's the next goalpost. And people talking about, you know, building generational wealth. And I was like, all right, I think I'm out. Like, because (laughs) I just have never really been motivated by money. And I sort of wish that I would be, but I am more motivated by experiences. Like, what do I want to experience? And that I am very clear on. It's always been so difficult for me to make money goals. And I'm always way off, like either way under or way over. It's the same when I make spaghetti. Like I make either way too much or not enough. And then there's way too much spaghetti sauce. Like I'm like, okay, what if I just decided what I want to experience? Because I'm very clear on that. I can get really excited about it. And then I just build my goals from that. I'm really not all that interested in making seven figures. Like I see, I have colleagues that have, and I have not. 
I have yet to meet one who is relaxed and like stress-free and just like has the sort of like level of anxiety that I have. Like I just, it's just not for me. And for a long time I had to, had to ask myself, is this like my money blocks or is this, <laughs> is this like, like no, an upper I mean, limit enough. problem or is right. it actually true to me? It's not like, it's like, I make enough money. Like I, I make plenty of money. I make more money than my parents ever did. I out earned my husband. He was able to, to quit his job, to be the stay at home parent. And I'm like, I think I'm living a pretty damn good life, even though I don't make a million dollars every year. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, that's part of hustle culture. And, and I, I, I give that example to point back to what I was saying before, and that it might take you a minute to come to the realization of, okay, this conclusion that I'm coming to, whether it's about drinking, whether it's about a job opportunity, whether it's about how much money you make, whatever, where is the, where is my come from? Like, is it a a limiting belief or upper limit problem or is it my truth? And this, this also points to the conversation about what is my intuition versus fear? Cause sometimes it's hard to decipher that. And the advice I do have like, like actual tools people can use, but at the end of the day, sometimes I'm like, sometimes you just have to give it time. Yeah. And, and just get quiet and make some decisions and then kind of just feel it out. And yeah, it it's, it's tricky and it's not linear and I wish it was, but yeah, that's how it is. I love what you said as well. And it sort of comes back to the early part of our conversation where you said, it's so important to ask like, what's my conditioning versus what is my truth? And maybe I said it wrong, but you know, there are these Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it, or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings, or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. Twin, like twin things were taught. Like one is fear of shining too bright, but the other is like, put your head down, work hard. Like, 
a lot of us, it's like, go to a good college, get a job, climb the ladder, get the, you know, the gold star girls, right? Like we want the pat on our head and it's hard to step away and sort of separate, like, what will people think of me if I don't hustle so much, if I don't take the next step in order to be happier to some extent, or in order to live your truth versus what everybody thinks you should want. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. And I love how you said it. And it's just, it's such a personal journey. And, you know, I have a lot of prescriptive answers about a lot of things. (laughs) And sometimes I'm like, I don't know. You have to, you have to go out there and figure it out for yourself. Like I can give you tools and strategies to try to get to your answer, but sometimes it just brings you closer to the answer and it doesn't like you're on the one yard line and it doesn't actually get you in the, it's called the end zone, right? When you make a touchdown, um, I'm not a huge sports person. Yeah. And I love when you're just like, okay, in the book, make some noise. You take people through like questions at the end Mm -hmm. of everything or like, okay, here's how you've been conditioned. Here's the culture you're raised in here, how it's impacting you. And here's kind of how to piece that apart and deconstruct it. And it's going to be different for other people, but yeah, what's your, what's your conditioning versus what's your truth? What are your fears versus what you really want? Yeah. I ask over 250 questions in this book. And I, I think that's an indicator of where I am now in my evolution as a coach and facilitator and author and speaker and is that we have to acknowledge that everyone isn't starting at the same place. Everyone has different family of origin stories. Um, some people have, have previous traumas. Uh, some people have different resources and support. And so it's all that to say, like what if I have all the tools, but what works for one person might not work for another. And then also just side note, if, if none of the tools work for you, you might want to look into your nervous system. Like is something going on with previous trauma or anxiety or depression or something that's a little bit more clinical. But I ask over 250 questions in this book because I want the reader to learn how to empower themselves. I want the reader to learn how to coach themselves essentially, because I love coaching it works. Like if you, you know, as long as the person's like trained and and experienced and it's so powerful when you can learn how to get curious about something instead of making a quick judgment call on it, or, you know, jumping to conclusions or you're making up stories about things that might not actually be true. Yeah. And sometimes it really does to have that help to have that external perspective, to have someone else or a coach be like, how true is that? Or, you know, you, you start going through all the things and it's like, okay, in this part where you were talking to me, you said X and Mm -hmm. let's talk about that when they're sort of going through all the laundry list of like, I could do this or I could do that, or I'm thinking this. And what about that? And it's like, okay, let's hone in on this one piece that you said, because that seemed really important and kind of drill that down. One thing I wanted to go back to, because I'm just really curious, and you sounded so, so clear on it and to have such great energy, you said that you're really clear on what you want to experience. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask, like, what is that? Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I want to experience. So I decided 
in 2019, late 2019, that I was going to stop doing group programs unless I was co-running it with a colleague because I really like doing it and, you know, it, it works, but it wasn't, um, it's not my zone of genius as, as Gay Hendricks said. And that was a really, there's, there's a point to my story why I'm starting here. That was a pivotal moment because from a marketing standpoint, that doesn't make any sense for me to let that go. Uh, it's, you know, we, in our industry, everybody talks about scale and the way to scale is the one-to-many model, which works for some. And it just wasn't working for me. It was, it was more draining than it needed to be because of the way that I coach and how in it with people get, et cetera, et cetera. So to let that go meant a loss of income. And so that's really when I started asking myself the question, like, what do I want to experience? Like, I love, 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 love getting up on stage and um, having people be engaged in a story that I'm telling where they are making themselves the hero of my story, even though it might be a personal story about me, even though it might be a story I'm telling about a client that I had, like they are seeing themselves in my stories. They are able to relate their life to what I'm telling them. And then they come up to me afterwards and tell me about the aha moments that they had. That is such a different experience to me than running a group program. Totally Mm -hmm. different. Like it's off the charts. And I also want to experience like writing books. There's something really amazing about starting out with a Word document or or my whiteboard that, and I just like kind of throw up all of the ideas that I have in like a mind map, you know, talk to my agent about it, create an outline or a book proposal. And then it turns into 85,000 words. Like that's all put together. Like all these, it's sort of like, I'm always fascinated with um, theater productions and the amount of work that goes into a theater production, like that's for entertainment for people. Books are similar. Like Mm -hmm. the amount of people that have had their hands in this, it blows me away and it it excites me to no end. And like, that's what I want to experience. Like those kinds of projects. And that just makes me so excited. Like it makes me so excited. And and I fall into the biggest vat of gratitude. Like I'm like, this is my life. Like Mm -hmm. I looked up to Judy Bloom and Beverly Cleary and Francine Pascal who wrote the Sweet Valley High series. Like I looked up to them so much that seemed like such a far away. That was like, cause I also grew up playing tennis. That was as cool as being a professional tennis player. Mm -hmm. I was like, you are a legitimate like superstar in my eyes. And all <laughs> so that here relates I am. to like tapping into what you actually want versus um, versus what people are telling you is what the right sense. thing to do. And actually being like, okay, does this make me happy? Is this something I enjoy? Am I getting burnt out? Is this part of hustle culture? Like right. all of that stuff. Yeah. And and it's not that I didn't enjoy group programs. It was just, it was exhausting me more than it should. And I was like, that is a clue that this isn't for me. Mm -hmm. And I felt really guilty about it, Casey, because, you know, I had a lot of people who wanted to join them and, and it also, um, you know, it, it allows me to reach more people at a lower price. And I'm like, so are books. Books are even cheaper than group programs. (laughs) And I can actually give them more information. So it was, it was a hard road to decide on, but that question of what do I want to experience really changed everything. Yeah, no, I love that. Okay. So I was reading through the book and I think it was in the taking up space 
chapter, but you talked about the concept of having a board of directors. And what I loved about it was that it wasn't the opinions of your father and your boss and your husband, or even the women in your lives. You talked about your board of directors being Jennifer Lopez, Billie Jean King, and Wonder Woman. And I was like circling it because I was like, what would JLo do? Right? Like just the idea of it. So can you tell me about that? Yeah. So this actually came from a coach of mine who, um, she had us do, do it as an assignment years and years ago. And I'm like, I am going to steal this. I, I credit her in the book, but I also have like on my wall, you can't see it right now, Casey, but I have a picture of Dolly Parton, RBG, Madonna's on there. Wonder woman, of course, is there. Um, who else? Just other, other art and things like that. And Amanda, what was her name? The one who said the poem at the inauguration. Oh yeah. She wore that beautiful yellow yes, coat. I remember her. Gorman? Yes. Amanda Gorman. Gorman. Yes. I knew it starts with a G. Amanda Gorman. And she's she's on there too. And so like these are these are the and it doesn't have to be women. It can be anyone. Like these are the women who you would like if you could have a board of directors for your life, like an imaginary board of directors for your life where you could um, lean on them for counsel, advising, those types of things, like who would it be? And it might be your mom and dad. Like it depends on your, your situation. Yeah. But for me, like you said, it's JLo, Billy, Billy Jean King, Lady Gaga's on there. Um, Cha-Cha De Gregorio from the movie Grease. <laughs> I'm mildly obsessed with her. But I think about that anytime I'm hesitating or afraid to do something, uh, I ask like, what would JLo do? You know, what would Billie Jean King do when it comes to speaking up for, for women's rights? And, and it, it typically changes my perspective. Sometimes though, I just need a nap and like, I've gotten really good at knowing when I really do need a nap. Um, most of the time it's not just cause I'm lazy. Like I genuinely need to rest. Yeah. So I'm not saying like I'm pedal to the metal all the time. Like I used to be, but yeah, I love that. I love that exercise. When it kind of just gives you the confidence to get over some of the fears or insecurities or things that are holding you back. Yeah, because we don't, you know, I talk about this in the book too, is there's a myth that many people buy into that we will start the thing when we get the self-confidence. It's like, how do I get this self-confidence? Like, give me the the blueprint for self-confidence. And I tell people all the time, like you get confidence through actions and experience and then competence and mastery. And for women, it's also, you know, the unlearning of these old, this old conditioning and programming but you need courage first and you don't need a ton of it. Sometimes you just need like 30 seconds of courage so that you can send the email so that you can put your new rates on your, um, on your website so that you can reach out to that person that, you know, has been sober for many years and ask for help. The self-confidence comes later when you have the experiences around the times that you had courage. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned reaching out to people or someone who's, for example, already quit drinking and kind of raising your hand and having the courage to say that. And in your book, you talk about the things you should start doing and then the things you should stop doing. And I wanted to talk about, you have a chapter that's about stop checking out of your life. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that. Yeah. That's all about, you know, the numbing mechanisms that we, that we do to avoid our life. Like I was telling you about, and I, and I want to, you know, also caveat this and say that it's, I wrote actually more about what I'm about to say and how to stop feeling like shit and how the line between self-care and numbing out can be very blurry (laughs) and it really depends on the person. So I know for me now I treat fiction books as I did wine. 
You know, it's like I get nervous if I don't have a book like lined up for when I finish the one that I'm reading. I did the same thing with wine. Like if my inventory was running low, I would get nervous. And, um, you know, I can spend hours reading fiction and like sometimes like I'll get irritated when somebody interrupts me, like if I'm really deep in this story. The difference is, is that reading fiction isn't negatively affecting my life. Like I'm not getting drunk from it. I'm not, it's not impacting me the way that it was when I was drinking or the way that I was when I was engaging in my love addiction or my codependency. So I really can view reading as, as a method of self-care. One of the things I talk about in, in the chapter and make some noise around checking out is when it comes to feeling our feelings, I think the thing that we don't really, I did, I certainly didn't know this is that a lot of your power lies in the processing and sort of digesting, if you will, of our emotions, because I was shoving that down and shoving that down through drinking or whatever it was that I was doing. And I was just shoving down all the feelings and and the trauma that I had experienced before. I didn't know that once I walked through that, I was going to be more powerful for having done it. Like that was news to me. (laughs) I talk, yeah, pain equals pain equals power for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And one area of the book, and it's an area that I have been digging into more and so much more aware of recently, like in the last two years, is you talk about not ignoring the brainwashing and sort of the patriarchy, how it shaped women, how we've internalized misogyny. And it's taken me a while because it happens in really subtle ways, right? Like in chronic dieting and being competitive in the workplace or judging other women, you know, even online. And so talk to me about how that is something that as we gain awareness of can really make us stronger. Yeah, that was a, that was a tough chapter to write, especially the part about internalized misogyny. And that wasn't in my original um, proposal, like in my chapter summary, that was not something that I was even completely aware had a name. Um, so it was sort of new research for me, but as you mentioned, internalized misogyny can, can manifest as chronic dieting, slut shaming, um, unhealthy competitiveness, like in the workplace or even within families. And in our industry, in personal development, we hear a lot of, you know, women need to uplift women. You know, we need to never put down other women, which I disagree with. Like some women behave poorly, like, and they need to be held accountable for that and, and responsible for that. But for the most part, you know, I keep hearing like, why, why do women um, put down other women? And we see it like in Facebook ad comments, like just, yeah. just like shooting each other down. And uh, for for really no good reason other than just being mean, you know, and like, and just, just mean girls in general, like that's internalized misogyny, you know? And I had a, I have a friend yes. who has a, a popular podcast and she put out an episode where um, she was talking about, you know, like, why do we tear each other down? And like, and I'm like, I need to come on your show and talk about internalized misogyny. Cause that's what it is. And she didn't even know, she didn't even know what that term was. So I like talking about it, but also dislike talking about it. Cause it makes me so uncomfortable. Cause I know I still have so much work to do. <laughs> topic. But, um, we do it because again, like it's what was a lot of times, like it was what was modeled for us. And I hate to say it, but, and I love reality TV also, but shows like real housewives. Oh my God. Yes. um, The bachelor. And I don't even know if it's on again, but there was one show for a long time. I think it was on VH1 called like bad girls club or something. (sighs) 
where it was just women fighting and being catty and backstabbing each other. And I'm like, oh my God, this isn't how we are inherently. It's Mm -hmm. not. It's what we're taught. And a lot of times we do it to be able to get closer to power, to be able to get closer to, I mean, like, that's what the bachelor is like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I know. I know (laughs) people are like, no, don't take the bachelor away from me. I think it's fine to watch it, but just understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that idea of there's only one seat at the table or there's not enough or why does she almost jealousy sometimes like, why does she get to do that? You know, like let's pull her back sometimes. And Right. And, you know, competitive in the workplace. So, so much of it is unconscious. But when you were saying it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a cliche about women or that's something that stereotype. Yeah. A stereotype. Like, I feel like a lot of stereotypes are internalized misogyny that have been set up to keep women in a certain frame. Sure. And, and like, let's be honest, like fighting is entertaining a lot of times. Like, are we going to, are we going to, are we going to tune into a show where people are having like mature functional conversations? Like that's pretty boring. Yeah, (laughs) I know. Cause I have them with my husband and like, they're not dramatic or, or entertaining by any means. So I, I mean, I hope that most of it is scripted and that it's not really real, but it's like, what are we, what are we teaching our, our daughters? Like, it's just going to perpetuate this, this universal stereotype that doesn't have to be true. Like it doesn't, it it doesn't. And that's, that's the conversation I want to have. Well, and there's a difference between like being mean or, you know, being a mean girl or cutting someone down versus, you know, sometimes people say like, oh, she's high maintenance. And in the book, you talk about how women's empowerment begins with women asking for what they want, period. Mm -hmm. So it's like that line between, are you high maintenance? Are you just drawing a boundary and asking for what you really want versus stuffing it down and bending over backwards and trying to accommodate everyone else? And then you get the dregs of what's left. And I know for me, then let me drink a bottle of wine a night because it's my only reward. Yeah, I started I started thinking about this several years ago when I I must have read an article somewhere about Tina Turner. And how she has been labeled a diva because she has very strict policies around um, when she's touring and things like that. So it's the whole like nobody can come and talk to her and or maybe it's just like one person that man. I don't remember what the details were, but they were they were fairly strict. And like I am not nearly as famous as Gina Turner. <laughs> and I've experienced that though before. Like if I go and speak up on stage at like a large conference, if I'm if I don't have someone there with me and I'm walking through the crowd. I will get stopped a dozen times to take a selfie for someone to stop and talk to me to tell, you know, for them to like pour out their story to me. And if that is unorganized, it can be a bit of a, it just can be chaotic. So I can't even imagine what that's like for, for, for superstars. And, and like, I, I understand that they have to have these, these rules and, and ask for what they want. And I, I, I'm going to bet that when men do that, they're just called rock stars, you know, and it's just sort of like par for the course, but when women do it, they're divas or they're high maintenance. Yeah. And that's what infuriates me. And, and just, that's why I want to have the conversation is like, no, they're just human that I mean, Tina Turner is also a rock star. Yeah. And part of that is just, would you make the same comment or have the same judgment about yourself or about someone else if they were a man? Right. 
And, and in order for, for people, you know, for Tina Turner, in order for her to be the entertainer that she is, she has to set these boundaries. And for a lot of people listening to this podcast, <laughs> in order for you to be the woman that you are, the employee that you are, the, the partner that you are, the mom that you are, you also deserve to set boundaries. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we are, I talk about this in the book, like there was a point where I realized I hadn't made myself a priority. So I did make myself a priority simultaneously realized that I was also continuing to make everyone else a priority and, and it was just burnout. So it's just something to think about when it comes to boundaries and, and what you're afraid of being labeled as. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the end of every chapter in Make Some Noise, you walk readers through what you call the unlearning. And there are four steps. So as women are listening this to take something away that they can implement today as they're kind of thinking about this and moving through their lives, what are those four steps? Yeah. So the first one is to pay attention. And it's sort of a no-brainer, like, and that just goes back to self-awareness that you probably hear a lot about when it comes to recovery or when it just comes to personal development. So you have to pay attention to when your negative self-talk is cropping up, when you find yourself putting other women down and you catch yourself doing it, you know, so it's just, just pay attention, just notice. That's it. Just notice. It's all about the noticing. And the second step is curiosity. And, and so instead of like, when you notice, instead of suddenly naming and putting a label on it, like, well, that's good or that's bad. You just get curious about it. Like that's, that's the goal. So like, why do you think that you judge women who are super ambitious? Why do you think that you drink an entire bottle of wine a night and and can't cut back even though you, even though you want to, like, what, what is it that's stopping you from, from reaching out for help? What's getting in the way every time you, you know, start drinking again. So just, again, just curiosity. And then the third step is self-compassion because what often happens when we start noticing and getting curious is that we beat ourselves up for it. Like we, we go down like that negative self-talk path. So you cannot better yourself without a healthy dose of self-compassion. I, I wish that that wasn't part of it because I know how hard it can be, but that's imperative. And then the fourth step, the last step is uh, to keep the momentum. And what I point to most often when I'm talking about keeping the momentum is having, having a conversation with someone. This might be your therapist. It might be your partner. It might be your best friend. It might be your sponsor. Uh, just someone like as you start to become aware and get curious, just talk about it. Like you can't fix anything you can't talk about. You can't. I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in a family where that was our, our MO didn't work. So yeah, those are the four steps. Yeah. I love that. And in the beginning of your book, make, make some noise. I love your letter to the readers in it. There was a part that I wrote down because I was like, yeah, this makes so much sense. And you said, we, as women have been socialized to not make too much noise, to put everyone else before us, to make everyone else comfortable And many times we don't even consciously realize that it's happening, but unconsciously we know it manifests in resentment, poor boundary setting, lashing out, negative self-talk, unnecessary apologizing. Yep, I do that. People pleasing, approval seeking. And that feels like shit. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think it's one of those things too. I, I love AA sayings. I don't, I don't go to AA anymore, but um, 
they were beneficial to me for a while. And and one of the sayings is it works until it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I think that so many of the struggles that women face when it comes to personal development fall into that category, you know, perfectionism and control worked for me in college and helped me graduate with honors. Um, it worked until it didn't. (laughs) And it's the same with, you know, people pleasing and like, if we, if it didn't work hundred percent of the time, we wouldn't do it. Yeah. So it, it can work for a certain amount of time. And then there comes a time and place where we realize like, God, this feels like shit. Like I, I, and, and sometimes like women will come to me again with this like general malaise of, of not really able to point to put their finger on what's wrong. And I ask them like, what are your coping mechanisms? Like, what do you do when things get hard? What do you do when shit hits the fan? What do you do when, um, you and your partner have a disagreement? Uh, you know, is it drinking? Is it perfectionism? Is it avoiding? And that can very much impact how they're feeling about themselves and about their life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have loved this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. I know women are going to want to get this book and follow up with you. So what's the best way for them to find you? Probably andreaowen.com slash noise because they can click wherever to either get the ebook print version or audiobook uh, version of the book. And then there's all the bonuses that are there too. So there's a 60 something page workbook because I asked 250 questions in the book. They're all there in a beautiful workbook for you. And um, there's a book club that starts on September 20th. It's totally free if they want to join that too. Ooh, I may have to join that myself because be I got the yeah, book. Yeah, let us see I your name in there. That. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank you so much, Casey, for having me. And thanks everybody for listening. Hey there. I hope you really enjoyed today's episode. As we're ending this, I just wanted to remind you about the new free training I've created for you on five secrets to successfully take a break from drinking. Even if you've tried and failed in the past, you can sign up right now at hello someday coaching.com forward slash class. I really hope you take a chance to do this, to take a few moments from your busy day today to learn something that will help you get out of the drinking cycle. I know it's hard, but I promise you, it doesn't have to be this hard. And I've created this class to help you change your mindset and change some actions that you've been taking to do something different so you can get started and keep on going. That's at hello someday coaching.com forward slash class. You can pick a time that works for you and sign up. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. 
We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.